Welcome to the Secret Stash, the Thrivecast episode. <laughs> yes, unbelievable. You're here, we're here, and we're ready to recap an amazing year of, uh, of Thrival interviews uh, right here on this podcast. Right. We got to get to it because we got lots of stuff, amazing stuff. Yeah, amazing clips um, from all the guests. So secretly, we ask secret questions called The Secret Stash, and nobody gets to hear them until this December show. So it's a very exciting show, and it's our Christmas present to you that you're listening. It is Merry Christmas and unwrap it with your eardrums. Pa-rum-pum-pum-pum. Now, we got a couple sponsors for the show, just like all of them, and we're super grateful for them. Yep. Uh, uh, one of the sponsors, Avalara, they've been with us since the beginning. I just got to hang out with uh, with one of the a- Avalara bigwigs, and uh, and he was he was smart, and he was funny, and he crushed it. And that just shows the quality and the depth of this organization. They're knocking sales tax out of the park so that you don't have to even think about about it because guess what that sales tax isn't in the park anymore go to avalara.com <laughs> to find out more about how they can help you and your clients crush sales tax and make it your <laughs> okay and <laughs> make it your fill in the blank listener we'll let you fill in the blank of what will let avalara make it thank you to avalara.com that's I, I right because it it's a family show who else sponsors this right. show zoho is a sponsor and um, people don't know this about Zoho. Zoho Books, uh, particularly their uh, accounting product, which you know is uh, it's a full accounting product. I don't know if people know that balance sheet, P and L, uh, all this stuff. But they have like multiple billions of other products, um, like uh, Zoho Docs, which is something I use for some of my personal right. documents uh, and cool. storage and things like that. Because they have a Mac app, so I really like that. Subscriptions, recurring wait, invoices. Wait. What? There's an accounting software that remembers that some people use Macs? That's right. Weird. <laughs> Weird. So Zoho Docs or Zoho Books actually is a sponsor of the Thrivecast. And I'm working with them actually to do a webinar next February, which is going to be really interesting. It's about uh, turning a firm's business model into more of a monthly subscription-based model and how that changes the value proposition of a firm Really cool. Yeah. So look for announcements Sweet. around that. So thank you, Sweet. Zoho Books, and your yes. product for um, uh, supporting the podcast. This is going to be a lot of fun. So let's, I mean, let's dive in. All we're going to do is introduce the folks that are going to be giving us these clips that are going to come in here, right? Absolutely. First, uh, the first secret stash uh, clip comes from uh, Bill Sheridan. He was our first guest of the year back in January. He uh, just finished uh he, he put out a book a short a nice short sweet book called love listen learn logic and uh it, or something <laughs> it has four l's look in the show notes it's there it was a good book uh and he's uh he this guy's part of uh, uh one of the best uh state society teams in the whole country yeah uh maryland m-a-c-p-a maryland association of cpas him and tom hood lead that so let's listen to bill give us some wisdom you know, it's it's very kind of informal. I I don't really have like an act like a, a list of things that I do to go out and find new stuff for the we blog. We need a five just, point list. That's what we need. Yeah, so. yeah. No, and I, I I don't have one. It's it's, oh, crap. it's basically just kind of noticing what's going on around you and getting into a mindset of saying to yourself, you know, how can I write about that today? You know, um, there's. Everything that happens to you every day is a story, um, and you just have to 
kind of figure out how it applies to the the topic at hand. So how can I, f- how how does this this three hour delay at the airport apply to CPAs? Can I figure out a way that cool. they would be interested in reading about that? You know, everything that happens to us every single day is is a potential story. And if you start looking at it that way, then you're you're suddenly you've got a million different things to write about. So it's it's just kind of noticing what's going on around you and and uh, kind of applying it to your audience. Um, that's, 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 that's as good as I can explain it. We have a, a social media policy um, that, that we kind of put in place, just guidelines for our staff and for members uh, to follow as they, they use stuff uh, in social media, you know, things like... Don't uh, sex you know, Tom Hood. That's right. You know, yeah, that's that's that's, that's like number one or two. Uh, you know, uh, you, you know, you don't. I, I don't. I don't think I'm bound by your policies. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, I, I had to. I had to convince myself to stop doing it. <laughs> but um, uh, you know, so we've got we've got a written policy, some guidelines. But uh, you know, one of the guidelines that we wrote down is simply to to experiment and have fun. And because that's what it's all about. I mean, that's the only way that you're going to learn. And, and you want to do it cautiously, obviously, and not put stuff out there that's that's going to get you or your organization in trouble. But at the same point, at the same time, you can you can still kind of say, well, you know, I wonder what would happen if I wrote this today, you know, yeah. and and just go out and do it and okay. see what happens. And okay. and a lot of times it'll you know, fall flat in your face and and. Uh, you don't do that again. And, and other times it works great and you get a lot of engagement and response and, and you start looking for new ways of, of doing the same thing. So, yeah, there's a lot of experiment. As, uh, we're still, you know, there, there's no real blueprint out there yet. Um, sure. Although, there, you know, I'm reading a book. If I can give a, a quick plug to a book that I did not write. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's a, a new book out there by uh, Gary Vaynerchuk called Jab, 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 right hook, yeah, and I that's heard as it's good, that, yeah. it, it's great. I'm I'm almost finished with it now, and it, that's as close to a blueprint for how to use specific yeah. social tools as I've seen, and it's it's really really good. And I've already started putting into practice some of his advice. So, yeah, meaning you just you just punch your iPhone until. <laughs> <laughs> until, uh, yeah. until, until until it becomes obsolete and you go buy a new one. That's right. Yeah, I think that's how it works. Well, you, it's it's weird, Bill. I keep you know I'm I'm just asking you these basic questions, and I and I, you guys are so good at social media and blogging. I was expecting you had yeah. some pretty directed stuff, but it sounds yeah, like, like like you have like you have to post X number of tweets every day, and yeah. you need to reply because because that's kind of, that's I mean I have just a, a guideline that I have. I, I like to post three content uh, fun funny yet content filled tweets every day. And I and I want to reply if anyone reaches out to me via Twitter, I want to have some sort of reply to them. I'm not so good with the latter. I'm really good with the former. But you guys don't have anything fixed like that. It sounds like no, not really. I mean, Jeez. you know, a lot of a lot of the, well, for a couple of reasons, a lot a lot of the stuff that I'm posting on a day to day basis is is um, you know news information that I, we think our members would be interested in. And I don't want to limit myself to just, you know, a certain number of tweets. If there's a lot of stuff going on that day, we need to get that stuff out to them. So, and then the other thing is, um, you know, social media to me is all about 
um, engagement, building relationships. And right. again, you, do, you don't want to you don't want to limit yourself on that. If if you if you have started a conversation and you're getting a lot of response and and people keep writing back, you you want to keep that conversation going and, and build that relationship as far as you can. So you know, I I I, I don't want to put any limits on any of that stuff. It's it's um, to me. Social media is, I'm really looking forward to the day when we can stop doing social media and just start being more social. You know, this stuff is just kind of built into the DNA of what we do every single day, kind of like the way that, you know, our phones or email are today. So, you know, I think we'll get there at some point. And, um, um, but in the meantime, I don't, I don't really want to constrain myself with any kind of preset limits on, on how often I'm going to post. Cool. Unbelievable, man! That that Bill Sheridan, he's got he's got a he 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 he's there. He's so he just gets a Tom Hood <laughs> and he repackages and reprocesses the amazing thing that is the team of Tom Hood and and shoves it in our face. That's right. You know, it's mentioned. He mentioned that Gary Vaynerchuk book, which is a that was a that was a good book, and it's actually even more popular than when he mentioned it then. So. um Jennifer actually uses that for some marketing in our firm, so that's really cool. So our next clip is from Rod Drury. People know he is the CEO, global CEO of Zero, yep, um, out of New Zealand. Um, and it, we kind of asked this guy a lot of stuff in the secret stash, didn't we? We, we were like, "Fix the world, go." <laughs> here's here's Rod Drury. Check it out. That's right. So he rambles through so many different things. But anyway, it was interesting. So, Jason, when I said, here's Rod Drury, check it out, that was supposed to be when we started. Oh, that's the intro. Okay, so say it again. Here's Rod Drury. Check it out, guys. Yeah, so what we did was we looked at sort of what desktop software costs now, and we split that down by, say, 24 months. I figured that was, you know, a pretty sort of number. Then you get get to the power of the nines. Right. That's going to be 29, 39, or 49. At the beginning, you know, our product was pretty thin. What we what we realized, a lot of people, you know, one of the things we did at the beginning was to say, um, let's make it for as many users as you like because we wanted accountants and business owners collaborating on the numbers. And I think even for a 50-person company, only three or four people really get into the books. So we figured we weren't giving too much away there. What we did just recently as we added payroll is move to much cleaner pricing. So, you know, $30, 40 $50 uh, just because you know it's just our brand to not be tricky, mm. and um, and then we can get some um, additional revenue because you know we're doing a big investment in this stuff uh, as people bring on um, employees, and you know the cost per employee is very very cheap. So yeah, our grow our, our our sort of strategy is to make it very clean and simple pricing, um, and as we add new features, we have and and we're providing more of the services that a small business would do, then we can charge a small amount of money, and hopefully that'll be uh, compelling. Gotcha. What now? Now you so zero started off as a free product. That's what you just said, right? No, no, no. No, we started no. off just as a twenty nine. Oh, as twenty nine. Thirty nine, okay. forty nine dollar product. Yeah. Okay. In markets. Gotcha. All right. It's interesting actually because we've done a lot of look at the freemium model, mm-hmm. and we found very few examples where things are free that people, when you sort of change to from step up to pay, that they actually pay. And the thing with cloud is you've got a massive investment in platform. You run something like yeah. two or three hundred servers. Wow. So. And, and it's really hard to do things for free. So you end up doing a non-direct model, whether it be selling advertising. And, you yeah. know, I just love that old quote. If you're, um, if you're not paying for it, you're not the customer. You're the product being sold. Oh, right. wow. No, right. so, so that's a good point. So when you price things, and that applies to, to accountants too, Rod. So we, the, 
the people who are buying your product and paying for it are really the ones that can perceive the value in it. So that so I think it's strategic that you actually are asking your consumers to pay for it so that they can perceive the value. Yeah, like we've, we've done this with training. Sometimes you provide free training and um, people don't turn up. You put a price on it, even a marginal price, and um, you know people do turn up. You know, so right. most of the things we try now, one of our strategies is you, you know, and you might do this even as a CPA, right? You might have like a health check service that you've got no intention of charging people for, but you put a price list of it. Hey, this is worth four ninety nine. Then I'm going to give you four ninety nine of value as part of a business development exercise to get to know your business. So I think there's some you know good pricing psychology around all of that. Very cool. So let me yeah. ask you about growth real quick and see if we can apply that to um, CPA firms. Is so is there anything about growing a company to scale? And Zero has scaled quite rapidly uh, in an amazing way and been funded very well. Right. Is there anything you wish you would have, would have known about scaling such a large company and growth back in 2006 when you started that you had to learn the hard way? Yeah, I think, I think the hard thing that we've learned, because, you know, we've been doubling staff, doubling customers, doubling staff pretty much every year, wow. is wow. that, um, very quickly you run out of, you know, people, especially at the very beginning when they're working so hard, um, you know, as you get bigger and bigger, you do need more skills. So the times that we've, because we're very loyal to staff, the times that we've kind of waited before we, um, you know, hired somebody to come in at the new scale we are, you know, we always wish that we did that sooner. So now if we if we see, see somebody who's done a fantastic job and then as the business gets bigger, we can see they're probably not the not the right leader. We try to preserve a technical track or a practitioner's track right inside the business. So we think of our business, our product managers are kind of the rock stars. So they're the ones talking to customers, um, making sure we're driving through new, new new product features. And everybody above a product manager is an overhead that's supporting, making sure they have the right resources, they've got the right people, and you know, they're basically supporting those sort of product managers. So... So we think very much of that, that as we design our organization that, um, you know, we're just continuously growing. And, you know, thank goodness I'm still in the role. I can't believe I'm still here. We, we only had four people when we started, but and then no one's worked out I'm faking it yet. So I'll keep staying for a bit longer. Yeah, I guess they, they should have kicked you out long ago if you were a real startup, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So one last question. And, and I know um, you there's design behind the flat organizational structure and you kind of build small teams. But but was there a point in time when it was hard actually to, to delegate to, to other people or did you always insert leaders into the company to really take a lead and you kind of step back and really own the vision more? Yeah, so I've always, I've done a number of businesses, I always realized they're much more fun if you have complementary skills. So, so. Right from day one at zero, I've been working on the business and my job's to hire great people who work in the business. So we, we run our C team, our kind of C-level team, you know, COO, uh, CFO, chief revenue officer. We run those guys as the kind of strategy and that they shouldn't be doing any work. They put then general managers and who are the operational people inside the business that build their team. So so I've got you know a, a pretty strong bench that, that I can work with on strategy and making sure we're executing strategy. And then we put a really good operational uh, team in place. So one of the interesting things that the byproduct of that is, um, as my, my kids got to five and started school, we actually moved away from where the main office is and moved into the New Zealand provinces, which have great schools and a much more relaxed lifestyle because I was always in the wrong place. 
And I was finding I was stressing people out if I was sort of walking around and telling them, you know, where's that coming? We just talked about that. And people actually need time to work. And I was doing no work because uh, I'd be walking around having coffees with everybody and just chatting. <laughs> and I ended up sort of having to work really late at night doing my actual work. So so that um, discipline of working on the business meant I could actually move somewhere really nice and uh, try to be a good parent, you know, put the kids to bed and take them to school in the morning and those sort of things. And and then I've you know, got 17 offices around the world. So, um, you know, I travel frequently, and uh, but you get that really nice mix. All right. So the next clip is from Ron Baker, and we have th- three. Who? Who the hell is that? So we have three clips from Ron, and I think some of my audio was echoey on these shows. Yeah. So sorry about that. Yeah. You should... <laughs> You should maybe you should try making technology a, a core value of your of your uh, firm. It's never been a big part of what we do. <laughs> if you guys can see what I look at at Jason, there's like three quarters of the Skype screen is actually his microphone. There's a little <laughs> tiny bit of Jason in there too. I'm hiding behind microphone- the microphone. But exactly, but but his anyway. Sorry about that. Uh, yeah, Ron Baker. Let's. He he's always he's always interesting, and there's always something he hates. See if you can find the thing Ron hates in these three clips. No, that's exactly right. I mean, efficiency is a table stake. It's not a competitive advantage. It's like having what? restrooms. Okay. Right. So, okay. And and what takes care of efficiency in the knowledge worker or a knowledge firm is the learning curve. Right? You're going to be more efficient doing your 100th tax return than your first. You're going to be more efficient doing your 100th heart surgeon, uh, surgery than your first. So uh, the, 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 the efficiency gets better just because of the experience and the learning curve. What uh, matters is effectiveness because will you guys admit that you can be efficient at doing the wrong thing? Oh, yeah. yeah. I so would if you're efficient at doing the wrong that. thing, there's nothing more useless. True. Very, very true. Why do people get so mad at you about that, Ron? <laughs> Because a lot of people are materialists who think everything needs to be measured, and if you're not measuring it, then you certainly can't manage it. So it's that whole McKinsey maxim, you know, what, what you can measure, you can manage. Well, this is nonsense. I wish you could change your weight by measuring your, by weighing yourself more, more frequently, but okay. you can't. Which, right? no, you can't, Ron, you can if your scale is upstairs. Because every... <laughs> <if> you, <laughs> Well, my scale's upstairs, Greg, and it hasn't helped much. But I, <laughs> well, you need if you measure yourself about three hundred times a day, you will you will see some serious. But but that's exactly the point, right? You 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 have to change your process uh, to to get the right outcome. You can't just look at the measured results. So right? Right. you can't well, change your golf score by by keeping score more accurately. You uh-huh. have to change your swing. And so, okay, so what you're saying is that people are fixated on efficiency because I can, because me- efficiency is is a measurement, effectiveness is a judgment. That's right. And efficiency usually deals with things. And let's face it, it's easier to deal with things than people because people are messy. Yeah, you I know? agree. And- so, Ron, let, let me ask you this. Is, is it possible to be uh, a Lean Six Sigma type consultant that obviously is focused on efficiency, but they're doing it for the right purposes for their ultimate outcome of their work to be an effective outcome. I don't even know if that makes sense. Um, <laughs> a lean Six Sigma, like a green belt or a black belt right. or a braided belt or some other type of belt. Uh, right. Uh, <laughs> a braided leather belt. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but my experience with these guys is they're, they're all focused on efficiency. They're all focused internally. None of them talk about value. None of them seem to be concerned about value. Lean 
as opposed to Six Sigma, pays great lip service to value. They really do. And they'll keep talking about the Toyota production system. The Toyota production uh. system. Well, the Toyota production system is much, much, much more than lean. Right. The Toyota production system goes to the heart of value. Mm. Yeah. And that's what the lean guys don't seem to understand. I'm not impressed with lean. Show me where lean has been greatly successful. Well, now, and that's actually, that's an interesting point because Ron, and this, this is, this really is a, uh, a point that that is close to my heart because if you remember the first time our first introduction was because I wrote some kind of smart ass uh, letter to the editor at the journal of accountancy about a six Sigma article that they posted (laughs) and, and whoever the person was that received my letter to the editor thought that you put me up to writing that letter (laughs) in, into them. But, but I, and what was, I think even when I wrote that, I think I was still in my, uh, MBA program and 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 my the the school that I was at they were they were very excited about uh, about lean manufacturing and my impression is this six sigma lean manufacturing those kind of things especially when they're really focused on efficiency that still fits in with your paradigm because when you're talking about manufacturing you're talking about manufacturing things so that's things. the proper place for the six sigma but when you try to lift those principles and put them into service it's it's out of it's out of place because all of a sudden you're not dealing with things is that right yes. Yes, okay. and but even even General Motors, who is an enormous proponent, not so much of Six Sigma, but more of Lean. Um, it, look at General Motors' results. Motorola did both Six Sigma and Lean. Is Motorola around? I think Google bought their patent portfolio, and that's it. So it, Lean Six Sigma doesn't even work very well in a manufacturing environment, which is where it grew up. And these right. Lean Six Sigma guys are trying to transplant it into a knowledge economy. And what they don't understand is knowledge workers aren't machines. Uh-huh. That's what they don't understand. They don't right. understand the subjective nature of humans. And they, they try and impose efficiency metrics. They're like, they're like modern-day Frederick Taylors with yeah. their little stopwatches. And try, but there's no such thing as generic efficiency. I don't want an efficient heart surgeon. I want an effective heart mm-hmm. surgeon. And effectiveness being defined as doing the right thing, whereas efficiency is just a mindless metric. It's just a ratio of, of uh, inputs divided by outputs or outputs divided by inputs. But, but <laughs> that means nothing, right? right. What, h- right. How do you measure outputs divided by inputs for Rembrandt mm. or Einstein? Well, you take how much paint, the, the pounds of paint or kilograms of paint, divide that Canvases, by... brushes, all of the, that. But does that tell you well, anything about I, the value of Rembrandt? Yes, because there's a lot of, you know, it's supposed to be about improving performance. Let, let's, let's cut right. the brass tacks, right? Performance review is all about improving performance. Right. If you look at the academic literature, the studies, and, and meta-studies, which means a, a study of all the studies that have ever right. been done, there right. is zero evidence, guys. Zero. Not a little. Zero. Zip. Zero. Not a bit. Performance reviews. I'm talking about the annual performance review. Improves performance. So uh-huh. the question is, why do we do this? You know, yeah. even even the lawyers like Jay Shepard and other labor lawyers say it's not required by law. It's not required to defend yourself in court. It's, I think, because the HR departments like their little uh, KGB files on everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, yeah, I mean, but doesn't that even go back to measurement where the HR department's saying how, how are p- people 
everything, I would say everything HR does that's really of value is subjective and is a judgment. But if they're able to show that they have files that are thick on all of their employees, that show, that's some sort of proof that they've been working. HR is far more into compliance rather than uh, improving performance. And so if, mm. if you look at the articles I wrote on this on LinkedIn, we got like 350,000 reads and I don't know, hundreds wow. of hundreds of comments on this. And most of the HR people were telling me, oh, but you're throwing out the baby with the bathwater. You know, it's just because the managers uh, don't, don't implement uh, the, the performance appraisal right. Uh. That's what needs to be corrected. And it's like, you know what? There's no good way to implement a crappy idea. You know, <laughs> t- tell me that this is, this is the communist argument, right? Well, you know, Castro blew it, Mao blew it, the Stalin blew it. But <laughs> if our guys do it, communism will work. It's a good right. idea. It just needs to be the right people. <laughs> a, a bad idea is a bad idea. Yeah. And, and it, it can't be implemented good, no matter how hard you try. And I think the performance review has proven to be a bad idea. Now, what's interesting, guys, is... You know, we, we can sit here and talk about problems all day, but have you? It, the challenge I got was, okay, Ron, point to companies that don't use them. Procter & Gamble does not use annual performance reviews. Adobe uh, does not use uh, perform, annual performance review. And, of course, my hero, Rick Ricardo Semler of uh, Semco in Brazil, mm. doesn't even have an HR department. He calls it the mommy uh, and daddy department. <laughs> he, he's got other contempt for HR. Uh-huh. So what? So instead of instead of a performance review, there what's is it? Just, does it just go away? I think if I remember right, you've got you've got a uh, a different process for getting the result that people are actually trying to get with a performance review. Correct. I've got a three part replacement to the performance review, and I, I won't you know depending on how much time you guys have, I'll just give you the three big ones. It's obviously KPIs for knowledge workers. So, okay, and most Keep- of these are judgments. Like and that's key predictive. Are we ta- we're key talking predictive key- indicators. That's right. Not okay. performance. They're predictive. And, okay. and most of them are judgments, like listening skills, communication uh, skills. How, how do you measure somebody's communication skills? Good luck trying to weigh that, right? Um, but you can judge it, right? You can make judgments about it. So mm-hmm. a lot of the KPIs for knowledge workers are more about judgment than measurement. So that's one uh, thing. The second thing is the after-action reviews. You guys know what a what massive addicts we are to the after-action review. Probably sure. the best knowledge yep. tool ever invented by man is yep. the after-action review. And if your firm does after-action reviews after every major engagement, uh, you know I wouldn't do them after preparing a little old lady tax return, but I but I do it on the twenty percent of my 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 customers that generated eighty percent of my revenue. Right. Then your organization, your firm is going to become a learning organization by doing after-action reviews and. Because we're all going, that's going to improve performance. That's actually going to do what the annual performance review purports to do, which is improve future performance. Um, and the third one is Peter Drucker's manager's letter, where the employee sits down with the boss. And, and this is my favorite part of this, guys, because I think this is brilliant. If, if, if you're my boss, Greg, I have to write down what your goals and objectives are for the next year, not just mm. mine, but mm-hmm. yours. Wow. And then I have to write down mine, and then we have to decide on the milestones, the, the indicators, the measures, the judgments that we're going to use to determine my success. We're going right. to, uh, if I need additional resources, if I need more training, if we need to hire somebody, right. if we need to outsource, that's all going to be put in there. Procter & Gamble ties this to the brand objectives. So they right. tie all of this back to the strategy objectives of the of the firm, and yeah. then we review that. And, uh, managers, we both sign it because it becomes a covenant between us, and yeah. then then we review it every six months. 
and, uh, and it rolls forward. It's kind of like a rolling forward budget. So that that is that replaces the performance right. appraisal, and and I think it's far more effective because it's all about the future. Yeah. All you're doing in the performance review is whining and complaining about the past, mm-hmm. and probably hurting somebody's feelings. Because you know they they have if you read books on how to do an effective performance appraisal, they'll give you the sandwich technique. Well, tell Greg, you know five good things he's done and right. tell Greg one area where he needs improvement. You don't sandwich it. Well, that's like taking a dollop of dog shit and putting it in your favorite ice cream. What are you going to taste? You know, the negative is going to outweigh everything. Yeah. I, 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 you know, this is um, a, a line by Ted Levitt, who was a, a Harvard marketing professor. He was kind of known as the marketer's marketer. Really, really bright guy wrote, wrote a, a great article by that title, I think, in the 60s sometimes. He also edited at one point the Harvard Business Review. And, and he argued that all goods and services are differentiable. And I, I think that's true. I mean, look at bottled water. Yeah. You know, there's an old, Greg, you'll appreciate this. There's an old Leave uh-huh. it to Beaver episode where Beaver runs around the neighborhood because, I don't know, the, the, the water's turned off for some uh-huh. reason. He runs around the neighborhood with his little red wagon and he's selling water. And his parents get all upset. You know, everybody's upset because he's peddling water, but people are buying it. It's like, you know, uh-huh. Beaver was a, was a pioneer. I mean, uh-huh. <laughs> but, so, so, but, but I'll give you another great example of this. I mean, obviously everybody uses Starbucks and, and you know, Starbucks actually took, you know, 99% water, right. And, and put some coffee in it and, and sold it for four bucks. Right. Uh, because they gave you a place to go. Right. And, and so they've taken a, a quote-unquote commodity, coffee, which was a commodity. I mean, where people perceived it that uh, before Starbucks entered the game, and they, and they moved it up the value curve. But how about a share of stock, guys? One share of stock. Why would you buy a share of stock from one brokerage firm for a higher price than another? You wouldn't, right? Because a share of stock has got a listed price. You can look it up and buy it at that. But there's an outfit here in, in San Francisco called OneShare.com. And they'll right. only sell you one share of stock. And, but it's a gift, and you buy it for your kid or, you know, a, a grandson or something, and they put it above their crib, and they get a little book on, you know, owning a stock and what does that mean to own a public company and financial reports and all of this. And, you know, the Disney stock sells really good because it's got all the characters on it. But, I mean, these guys have differentiated a share yeah. of stock. <laughs> <laughs> And, right. and, 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 and good marketing, that's a marketer's job, is to differentiate so they can non-commoditize, decommoditize something. So, and, and Procter & Gamble does this every day with toilet paper, for crying out loud. We don't even buy the cheapest toilet paper. <laughs> they have billion-dollar brands in toilet paper. <laughs> so if they can differentiate toilet paper, you're telling me CPAs who are in a human relations business can't differentiate a tax return or an audit? It's BS. It's a cop right. out. It's a bad excuse. So it was cool. Um, so thank you for those those Ron Baker clips. Did you find out what he hated? It was it was six performance Sigma. review. What? what? Oh, and performance review. Yeah, it's six, oh, bunch of stuff. Yeah, there's so much things. <laughs> so now we asked my coach <laughs> to be on the podcast, which I was. That was kind of special for me, right? And this is Ed Batista. Yeah. Which is interesting because in the Guardians of the Galaxy, that big giant dude that has like the blue skin and the red tattoos, yep. the actor there is his name is Dave Batista, which I think is the older brother of your coach. <laughs> it is. That would, 
and it beat the hell out of him and really turned him into an accountant through those beatings. No, he's, nothing, he's nothing not an accountant. <laughs> nothing turns and Batiste you into, is not a, an accountant. Nothing. Okay. <laughs> you just said his brother beat him up and turned him into an accountant. He's not an accountant? No. What? You can have a coach that's not in your same field? Yes. What? We, you can, can you believe we have a non-accountant on the podcast? That's I, what I can't what? believe. Un- unreal. We're breaking We're really rules left and right. The shark off the rails. Let's listen. I swipe to- you left on Tinder. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's listen to Ed Batista. I, I believe you can coach yourself, and that's not mutually exclusive from the experience of, of working with a professional coach. By no means. Uh, I think of self coaching is um, it's. It's not a solitary activity. It's a self-directed activity. Okay. When I say self-coaching, I don't mean that you're just gonna, you know, go off in your attic and and you know reflect and solve all your problems. <laughs> you're gonna be in charge of your own growth and development, um, taking a more thoughtful, intentional approach to it, which may include some solitary reflection. May include you know stepping back from your daily life and, and uh, thinking about things in a longer perspective. But it may also include working with a professional coach or having other kinds of coaching conversations. Gotcha. Okay. So you're just directing it and it might be that you're doing some of it, but you're bringing other people in when it's time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that, that when it's time is key, you know, I, the people, uh, people in my coaching practice right now, um, I've worked with for an average of 11 months, close to a year. Um, but, you know, we'll wind up, we'll, we'll stop at some point. And I think it's going to be very important for everybody that I work with to understand, hey, what what have I gotten out of coaching? What have I gotten out of my work with Ed that I want to be mindful of, that I want to continue to do um, on my own? Maybe some of that involves conversations with other people in my, in my life, friends, family, colleagues. Uh, maybe some of it involves um, some more kinds of structured reflection. So I, I think self-coaching is something that can uh, take over um, when someone's done working with someone like me. And it's also something that happens simultaneously when you're working with a coach. You know, right. Well, and you, and you say that. And uh, you, one of the things that you wrote about self-coaching says that it turns out that 99% of all coaching is really self-coaching. Yeah. I mean, I, I, if you run the numbers, you know, somebody who I'm in an active uh, uh, coaching engagement with, we spend 1% of their working hours together. So that means that 99% of the time in their working life, uh, they are guiding themselves through every difficult uh, situation, through every tough conversation, every decision they have to make. Uh, it's it's possible that I'm, uh, you know, my work uh, helps kind of uh, shape their approach to those situations. But I'm 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 very much in the background. So even the people that I'm working with very actively are self coaching. So so why did you? I mean, did you come up with this this topic? And I don't know if you came up with it, but because you were struggling with wow, we leave coaching sessions and we say, what now? What are you going to do now? And I'm, I really have no power to help them. And so I'm kind of, I've, I've felt helpless as a coach before. I'm like, what are you going to do now? And they go do it. And sometimes they don't. I'm like, what What was I supposed to do to make them do it? And I, I guess, did you come up with a concept to kind of relieve yourself of the burden of worrying about what they're going to actually accomplish? I think that, I wouldn't say it came from a sense of worry, but did come from a sense of there's a there's a missed opportunity here to provide some ongoing help, even when I'm not sitting face to face with somebody. It actually grew out of a a conversation I had with a, a student of mine at Stanford. He uh, he was about to 
his aspiration was to um, uh, become a, a, a boutique hotel owner. He wanted to kind of find a property, uh, spruce it up, and it was going to be a very entrepreneurial effort. Um, he was not going to have a lot of resources at his disposal. And he said, geez, I've benefited a lot from the coaching and other forms of support I've received here in business school. I'm not going to be able to pay for this. I'm not going to be able to afford a professional coach you know, after I graduate. I'm going to be on my own, uh, hustling, uh, you know, hunting down resources. How am I going to coach myself? And, and it, that really struck me. I thought, geez, you know, there's a lot of work that I'm already doing right now on my website and other locations that I think is generating a set of concepts and materials that even people who aren't working with a coach immediately could benefit from. So that was really the, the sort of genesis of the concept. Cool. So it's just really just a realization of uh, the facts that you can't be with people. 99% of the time they're trying to achieve what they've learned with you. And so you're just, I guess, diving into how to use that stuff on your own, I guess, in, in a self-directed way. Well, and it also comes from, I mean, I believe, uh, you know, coaching is a very humble role. You know, I'm, I'm not advising people. I'm not telling people what to do. My clients, my students, they know a lot more than I do about their lives and the challenges they face. So I can, I can add value um, by developing, you know, close trusting relationships within which I've earned the right to ask challenging questions. Um, but, you know, at the end of the experience, you know, I'm a very small part. I play a very small role in what my clients and students choose to do. Uh, so the flip side of that, though, is that, you know, my clients and students have a lot of control. They have a lot of autonomy. And I think when we recognize sort of our full capabilities to, to guide ourselves through difficult experiences, to grow as professionals um, and to do so more intentionally and thoughtfully, you know, we can make a lot of great things happen. But it does require, you know, some intention, some forethought, and and that's that's where I think the concept of, of self coaching um, gives people a, a kind of a set of tools to do that more uh, more deliberately. Right. Cool. And so and so, Ed, with this, if somebody let's say somebody jumps into this self coaching regimen uh, without having a, a coach that they're that they're uh, that they're using, it, really the end result of of, of the self coaching. With the you know self engagement, setting goals, self awareness, uh, interve- intervention and acting, self assessment, things like that. The ultimate goal of all that is for them to realize, oh wait, I really need an actual coach. Uh, not necessarily. So, I, I'm not. I'm certainly not trying to upsell anybody here. Okay. Uh, I, I I honestly believe that um, you know everybody that I work with, they're going to benefit more from our time together. Um, if they're putting more energy in the time when we're not together uh, into uh, kind of understanding this process and being being more deliberate with themselves, hey, how do I how do I guide my myself through uh, you know, through the through difficult experiences and through uh, periods of growth? And that said, I mean there there are many 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 more people who are not in a you know kind of privileged position where they can uh, they where they have the time, um, energy, and money to work with a professional coach. And so my hope is that that these kinds of resources are useful, um, even to somebody in that in that in that service. <laughs> All right, these are these are fun. Yes. So Ed Ed's a smart guy. Um, I'd hate to get into like you know a um, what's those things where you one person talks and you talk a debate. debate That's what they debate. are. <laughs> <laughs> We're smart. Yeah, think, We're smart. I think you just 
I think you just proved that you'd lose. What's that thing called? <laughs> that dealie where you talk and the other guy talks? Yeah, yeah. what's that dealie where I talk and he talks? Well, that'd be a uh, debate, something you would lose your pants off. <laughs> okay, Joey Brandon is the actually the director of the Thrival Incubator. Yes. And we got some where, cool news coming up. Which is where all of the, you know, our, our urban farming uh, comes from the eggs that are hatched from the chickens that were in right. the Thrival Incubator, right? Right. Joey leads that incubator. Good. And he is an expert in heat lamp voltage and which <laughs> amount of voltage is accurate to <laughs> hatch baby chickens. To hatch Thrival this, eggs. It, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, Thrival eggs are different than other eggs That's is what right. I'm saying. That's it. Uh, no, actually, let's listen to Joey talk about difference between coaching and consulting and a bunch of other cool stuff. He's a smart guy. Here we go. I think the biggest difference between um, coaching and consulting is that when you're consulting – I think you're more focused on long-term objectives and you don't let the agenda always be set by the client. You let the agenda be set by the objectives. So what I mean by that is, that, you know, in, in a consultative firm environment, you're going to have to do both because when, when you're consulting, you're typically focused on what the organization is trying to accomplish. When you're coaching, you're focused more on what the individual needs to know, understand, get better at, see, um, accept so that they can continue to execute on the plan. A lot of the coaching stuff that I do is about helping individual people become better performers in their role in the organization. So the agenda is really set by whatever they're struggling with. When we consult, the agenda is set by whatever the business owner has set out there as the objective that we're trying to achieve. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that's very good. So coaching is fluffy, intimate, dealing with people. Consulting is executing on achieving uh, some outcomes, I guess. Yeah, I, and I, I really break the consulting part up into two phases. You're, you're diagnosing and you're executing or you're, or you're planning and then you're executing. So when right. we do consulting work, uh, the, our, the way our model works, the kind of rhythm that we get into with an organization is we do the planning up front. So once a year, we'll spend at least a day together talking about what we're planning on doing over the next two to three, maybe four years, if you get really crazy. And what, it, what, what are the definite things we're going to try to make sure happen over this next year to get to that point? And then whatever we decide we're going to do and how we're going to do it for that next year – that's off the table for the next 12 months. You don't get to come back and revisit that. So if you decide that we're really going to focus on everything that we do for the next year is going to be drilling down to getting better customer service because we know that until we get that hammered out, growing is going to be very difficult for us. So when you get to the second quarter or the – or the end of the first quarter, and they go, yeah, I know we're kind of focused on customer service, but there's this other company over here we'd really like to buy because they have a good fit with us. And that's what we're going to, no, 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 no. We decided that we're going to focus on customer service. I know it's a good opportunity mm. over there, but opportunity is going to kill us. Mm. We, we're always going to have opportunity. What mm. we don't yeah. have is more time to fix this customer service problem. And if we decided that it was important back in December or January, whenever we did our annual plan, it, we we beat that to death, and I've made sure that you guys were totally committed to that. <laughs> right. So I'm not going to let you off the hook to switch gears. Nice. All right. What's and your now, question? Well, I, well, just just real quick, it's a, on the coaching and and uh, 
consul and cons- consulting, uh, the differences between them. If coaching is really one-on-one when you get, so you get the diagnosis and then you'd still get the execution, but it'd be more like you have some serious problems. I think you should probably die. Is that what you're, <laughs> what? what? So what's your question? I took that too far. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, I want, I want to know what you, you've talked about pace before. And I have no idea what you mean by pace. And I'd like you to explain your, your concept of pace to me. Okay, so the way pace works, um, it's basically the speed at which you move through some kind of process. So okay. when you're, for instance, when we're doing that planning back in December, the, pa- uh-huh. the pace is very, very fast because we're trying to stay at a 30,000, 40,000, whatever analogy you want, 50,000 foot view and see the okay. business as a whole. Well, you have to move quickly to do that because if you slow down, you very quickly get into operational details, tactics, you know, oh, we can't we can't okay. grow by 12% this year because Susie on the front desk keeps pissing off customers. Well, okay. So you have to move no, Susie. No, no. so you say, "Oh, we're not going to talk about Susie. That's a topic for another day. Let's go back to" and you're really focused on the agenda and moving them through the agenda okay. and staying at a high level. When you get to, um, so let's say that that planning is done and Uh we're deciding what are the projects we're going to work on for the next quarter, we slow down, we go, okay, where are the, what are the things that have to happen for customer service to get better? Oh, our front desk, Susie's killing us up there. Okay, let's, is it a Susie issue or is it a training issue? Maybe Susie, so we slow things down, we actually start to talk about it. And then in a weekly meeting with just the managers, you might, you might be saying, hey, we tried this new training program and Susie's just not getting it. And I brought Susie's last three performance evaluations. I'd like the group to just kind of, let's hit the high spots on these and make a decision today whether she stays or whether she goes. Ooh. And that could be a two or three hour conversation about one person. So the pace slows down to a crawl, but it's because we get down to that operational tactical level. So you can use pace to your advantage if you're facilitating these kind of meetings or if you're responsible for them by saying, hey, if we're going to be at a 50,000-foot view, we have to make sure that we follow the agenda to the letter, even if it feels like we're leaving out significant parts and and good information here. We got to keep moving. We have to have a fast pace here. And then when you slow down uh, and you say, hey, we're going to talk about letting this person go, maybe you slow everything down a lot and you just say, hey, right. we're all going to eat lunch together. Uh, we're just going to spend the next couple of hours talking this over. Right. So, so basically, it sounds like, I mean, if we're, if we're able to go back to the whole diagnosis versus execution uh, thing that we were talking about before, the diagnosis needs to be, uh, it, it needs to be very, very intentional, very deliberate, and it needs to, you need to get to a diagnosis that's a big picture diagnosis. But then as soon as you get an execution, the, ex- the the pace changes significantly. Yeah, absolutely. And and okay. it sounds like, Joey, you're you're making sure you're intentional with the client to say, we're doing big picture strategic planning in four hours. We're going to stay big picture. The pace will be fast during this meeting. And if you, if you come up with a Susie issue, we're going to table it and we yeah. can slow the pace, but that is a separate meeting. So that sounds like your goal is to be just upfront and intentional with the client about what the pace will be in any kind of engagement or consulting situation. 
Yeah, and and you basically tell you prep them for the discomfort that they're going to feel, and you say, "I know that this is at times right. you're going to feel like I'm I'm hurting you through this like cattle, and we're just trying to get to the end." But there's a reason for that. It mm. helps us stay at a high level. And the most effective tool for getting people okay with a fast pace is a parking lot. So. You know, on the corner, okay, right. on the corner of the whiteboard or a separate flip chart, you go. This is the parking lot, and every time something comes up that we don't have time to get to, or that's not on the agenda, we don't want to lose it because a lot of good ideas are going to happen. That's the way these meetings go. But we're going to put it in the parking lot. And yeah. I was at a client last week, and they still have all of our flip charts from the planning we did like two years ago. Up on, we did a, a pretty big strategic plan for them. And they've got all these things hanging, um, kind of stacked on a wall. And on the very top was the parking lot. And some of that stuff is still there. It's still good stuff. It's just not a top priority right now. No. So right. always capture so it. So get back to the parking lot, Susie. Is that what you say a lot? Yeah, exactly. Cool. Told you Joey was smart. To- totally. excited. Some exciting stuff. Where do pe- If people want to know more about the incubator, where do they go? So they go to thrival.com. And you'll see a link at the top. There's logos of the different divisions of the of Thrival. And the blue logo, which is the incubator, is up there. And 2015 is going to be a big year for the incubator. So um, more on that later. But it'll be in the first quarter that we'll release a little bit of a new site to kind of help you get involved in the incubator. But it's for building new firms. Right. So, so like if, if somebody's wanting to launch out and hang, hang in their own shingle, that's what the incubator is all about. Is there a deadline for like app, applying or something like well, that? Well, it'll be in the first quarter of next year. We haven't nailed all okay. that down, but you'll need to apply to the incubator. But it's a nine month class you want to come through to help yeah. you start your own firm. And it'll blow Excellent. your mind. Fantastic. And and Thrival is spelled trivial for those of you who aren't. Um, That's right. Uh, our next guest is, uh, is Dr. Keneal Joyce. Uh, where, where's she from? She's from, uh, some smarty pants school. Well, (laughs) she's from, she lives in Los Angeles, but I think she taught a little bit at the London school of economics. And I believe she got her PhD from Stanford. Yeah, that sounds right. I think you can find that out. I don't know. And this is one of our shorter clips today, but what's crazy is I have actually gone back and listen and re-listened to this podcast. And I know that her actual podcast from when was that? Uh, was that the July one? June. June. From yeah. June. And I went back and listened to that again. I need to go listen to that a, a third time. I would say that the Keneal Joyce podcast was probably, uh, I, in my estimation, one of the most practical mm-hmm. uh, podcasts that we've had because she walks you through some some very concrete steps of how you can become a genius, yeah. which uh, I desperately need yeah. so it's uh, about so, it's about being creative you know she yep. she tells you how to do it actually yep exactly so so amazing stuff so let's let's get some more uh, brilliance from Keneal Joyce right and now how do you define your right target market um you, you maybe with, that's how you develop your niche well, you know that you start well, with your strengths you, I think you start with who do I like who likes me and who is nobody else serving and what do I like to, what do I like to, so you said, who do I like? Could it be, what do I like to do? What yeah. Kind of, okay. Yeah, kind of the same thing. To go for your interests. Um, and if, if you tend to like really like a certain kind of person, I assume you guys really like creative people. I do too. Yeah. And so, you know, I've chosen to focus my life on serving them. That's, that's a big part of my target market. 
but um, it's not just all creative people. It also has to be who likes me. So there's some creative people that just can't stand me. And so that's not really a good one for me to work on. Mm. So I have to, I have to think about who naturally is attracted to me or, or my services. And then the last piece is who can I serve that nobody else is serving well? And that helps me define my niche. Nice. That's, that's fantastic. How, is there an easy way to figure out who, who likes you? <laughs> I mean, not you, me. Like it, I, it's that yes that, and no a, box. That seems like that's a tough one to do, to, to, to figure out. Do you, I mean, cause, yeah, cause individually I can, I can list some individuals who mm-hmm. don't like me, but it's hard to get like broad brush, you know, the, the Dutch don't like me. Um, I guess like, I don't know, people, people tend to email, um, asking for favors or like coffee, you know, they want to go to coffee and I try to look for like, what's the pattern here? Who wants my help? Okay. And, and what are the kind of people that like, if I just were to tie it together of the people that reach out to me and are proactive, like those are the ones that, that I can serve. So you, you try to profile the people with whom you've had positive uh, interactions with in the past. So you can't just blank slate it. You got to look at some of the data in the back in the past to figure that out. Yeah. And try to yeah. make some connections. Okay. I get that. That makes sense. Yeah. And our next guest, Adam Davidson. Yes. If you came to deeper weekend thinking that you got to meet Adam Davidson, you were wrong. You were wrong. <laughs> This is this is our concession is you've got about six more minutes from which you can pretend like you were asking him the questions instead of us. That's right. But Adam Davidson, who is this guy? So this guy, he writes for New York Times and he started the Planet Money NPR podcast, right? Yep. Yep. One of my favorite podcasts. Yeah, one of mine. And that's been around like that thing, that's like one of the original business podcasts. It's like got how many episodes of this I don't know. There's like, I think there's like over 500 episodes of this there's, podcast. There's a lot. There should be that many it's, at least. It's yeah. huge. Yeah. As some yep. people and say, it's huge. It's huge. And it's, and it's always, it's always good. I don't, I don't always ever listen to one and go, well, that was a waste of time. That was good. And we got this guy with us and we, we talked for an hour and then we talked for more on this. And, uh, and he's got some, some great stuff about, about storytelling, things like that. Uh, so let's let's listen to some Adam Davidson. Um, so I will say, like the, the the first story I did, the giant pool of money, which which actually launched Planet Money. So Planet Money didn't exist when I did it. It was an hour uh, special for This American Life about the that was you know that still is you know kind of like the lightning in a bottle that I feel like we're constantly trying to hit. I mean, it was just a very special uh, experience where we were able to kind of first explain to ourselves and then to listeners like, wait, what's happening to the economy? Why are we all right. about to go broke and are freaking out? And it, it just felt very, very um, exciting to, to be able to, to do that. And that, that, that was really, really fun. And the, the, I mean, I, this is an awful thing to say, but the, the months or two when the financial crisis was in full swing in September, October, 2008, where the world is collapsing. Yeah. I mean, I hate to say this. It's an awful thing to say, but it was a thrilling time. It was like, <laughs> yeah. you know, we for were just hurling ourselves. For a storyteller, it's like, you know, suddenly all this obscure stuff that I'd been covering for years and absolutely nobody cared about was suddenly really, really important. Right. Wow. Interest rates and the Federal Reserve and 
fiscal policy. And, and, um, and I was learning, you know, every single day, like there'd be some huge crisis around something I didn't even know about. And I had to like go on the radio and explain it. And it was just right. a really great time. I don't know that the stories I did were like my best ever, you know, cause it was, <laughs> I was getting very little sleep and, and, uh, just working as fast <laughs> as I could, but it was, it was an awesome right. time for me. I hate to say that because it was such an awful time for everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Okay. So, so that is, that actually leads very nicely into the next question, and that is from so, and maybe even particularly from that time, you know, when we were in this horrible, you know, when your your heyday, the the world's uh, D day. What uh, what what were some of the most powerful and poignant lessons? that you learned from that time? I mean, are there some things that you can, you can rip out of that experience you had covering that stuff every day and say, if there's anything I learned, it is this, keep it in mind. Don't forget it. I mean, I think probably the single biggest lesson, which I think we're all still reeling from is I, I think we, I certainly had, and I think most people had just kind of a general assumption that those kind of grim men in dark suits who, sort of ran our, the plumbing of our economy, that they knew what they were talking about. And they were, you know, like, you know, like master engineers who just like made everything work really well. And yeah. to learn that they could be so colossally wrong in so many ways. And that my kind of looking back, you know, I'll be honest, my sort of blind faith in them was really, really misplaced. And that was a profound lesson that, wow. that authority yeah is is kind of a performance and it's not mm. um and yet you, you, you have to you have to really question it and challenge it and and not and catch yourself if you're just falling prey to it um you know i mean even in in, in accounting like you know all these companies they had really well audited books you know really good yeah. <laughs> you know following all the latest accounting uh. standards with the highest the best software and the you know the most highly paid you know contr controllers and all that stuff and um and it really didn't matter because there were a few flawed assumptions and some bad actors and um and that ended everything so i'd say that's the single most um profound lesson. I think another major, major lesson is about storytelling that, that, um, mm. when the world is rocked, um, you know, I covered the Iraq war, I covered the earthquake in Haiti, I covered the tsunami in Indonesia. I spent, you know, much of the last, um, much of my career was kind of covering the big story of the day. And it's a story I've learned again yeah. and again, people really, they want the facts, but they also want a context. They want a story. They want a narrative to yeah. frame yeah. The, the world. And, and that's a really valuable skill to have. I think oh, that great. is what, you know, one of the things Thrival teaches is, is how, I mean, that's my sense is how to be that in a, a smaller way, is that fair to say, but in a more intimate way, you know, you're not right. helping your clients understand the Iraq war, but you're helping them understand their place in society. And yeah. that's really valuable. Awesome. Right. Okay. Two, two more quick questions for you. Maybe the first one's not so quick. Mm -hmm. When, during, during the interview we did for, for your podcast in uh, July, uh, you talked about how we're kind of entering a new era of our economy that in the, the 1900s, it was all about standardization, routinization, commoditization. And now the, that we need to identify and articulate our unique value and how that meets a market need. One of the lingering questions I had from that podcast is this. When you, when Adam Davidson looks into his crystal ball into the future, do you do you believe that if you're not creative, you'll be left behind 
in the good question in, in in this new millennium that we're still at the front end of? I mean, I think the simple answer is yes. I mean, uh, I, I think that if you're not providing a unique value, or if you are providing a unique value, but you're not able to articulate what that unique value is to the people who will pay you money, whether that's a boss or a client, um, I think increasingly you you will be left behind. I mean, I, I think our society will have a place for, you know, lower skill kind of commoditized labor, but that it's hard to see how those wages will rise, how those opportunities will increase. So, I mean, and, and even when you look there, if you look at the trades, which are skilled, you know, carpentry, electrician, et cetera, yeah, I think sure. those, that's going to be a world where you need to articulate your value in a special way, yeah. you know, th throughout our economy. So simple answer. I don't like short answers. I like going on and on and on. Simple right. answer. Absolutely. I think you'll be left behind. Okay. Adam, was, Adam was smart. Yeah, always. And and seriously, man, so so much of that story stuff that he was talking about in the in his real podcast and here, that's stuff that I, I I've really latched onto that and I think that that's incredibly powerful. The uh, the power that comes with having a story. Uh who's who's next up on the docket? So we got Adrian Simmons. Now, so we're just going through all the directors. He's the director of the Th Thrival Laboratory in Thrival and we he's uh, who we refer to as Yoda in yeah. um, Thrival because <laughs> he right. says stuff so deep. We're like, huh? Hang on. Right. What did you say? Right. We don't like quite whenever, get it. Whenever he has, whenever he raises his hand to speak, everybody, everybody's like, Sh okay, shut up, shut up, shut up. He's about to say something. Shut up. <laughs> shut up. <laughs> so that must be so much pressure on him. <laughs> I know. To I always know. say it's something so deep. I know. Good thing he lives up to it. And we're going to listen to him uh, tell us some deep stuff right now on his section of Secret Stash. Yeah. All right. So publish, we hope to have published the first lab report on the business model prototyping. Uh -huh. Which uh, will include not just, that's going to include different ways to run your CPA firm. Yeah, so actually the different business models and what the components of them uh, are. So ones that we okay. see now and ones that we envision for the future. Right. And is there, there going to be some kind of uh, these models are profitable, <laughs> these models are unprofitable? Uh, well, some of them will have to be tested. Like we're just prototyping the model okay. itself. Uh, whether or not it makes money is a whole other story. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> And um, secondly, I hope to have published by the end of the year, it might be January, that value accounting model and have that in lab report form as well and out to the profession. Okay. Uh, and then January, we'll announce the next round of experiments for 2015. So Okay. And and retouch one, one more time, retouch on the value, that value model. That's the... The value accounting model, that's a sort of way to look at the financial numbers that's helpful to the small business owner that's more intuitive to them. Involves less accounting lingual explanation, but really helps them get at whether their business is doing well or not, and right. not ask by tax law or gap. Gotcha. So, so uh, that's kind of the in, in, instead of issuing financial reports and then your client coming to you and saying, "What do these mean?" Right. And then you issuing another report telling them what it means. Right. You just go straight to the, to the right. one they really need. Exactly. Okay. It's sort of like, we have to give this tax return, we'll give that to Uncle Sam. This financial statement has to go to the bank, but here's the one that actually helps you know what's going on for real. Right, right. What, do you, what are some of the things on that that, uh, that you think people real? I mean, what, it, 
it's so, I mean, and you have you started? Tell me where you're at with that the, the value reporting. Sure. Um, actually, it's something I've been working on personally for about maybe two or three years. Um, nice. I first showed it to Ron back in 2011. To Ron Baker. Uh, to, yeah. Wow. Nice. And um, so, but the, but some of the ideas are saying, okay, what's the theory of business? What's the uh, theory of you know profit making? And then how do we then reflect that in the way we um, reflect the inflows and the outflows? You know, and it's also built on what's the business model for the customer we're with and how do we reflect their business model in the financial statement? Okay. Um, oh, wow. In terms of the sources and uses of money as okay. well as sort of then how the profits are divvied out. So lots of ideas. It'll be a good exercise to actually write them all down um, yeah. in con- cohesive fashion. But that's maybe a, a gist. Cool. Okay. So in that, uh, Adrian, Adrian said that the, that he was hoping to get a report out soon. That report is Done. actually out now. Am I correct? It is. It is correct. Swipe right on Tinder app. Right. When you when you see <laughs> when you see Thrival Labs when you're going through Tinder and you see Thrival Labs uh, report to the nation's one, you swipe right on that. Hottie. Hottie, that's a hot. You want to go on a date with it, and you want to pay. That's how <laughs> that's good right. it is. So go go back to thrival.com. Go to the top. Look for Thrival Labs. It's a picture. It's not a picture of Adrian, but you go go there and click left. Do a left click. Is right. What I, to swipe right, click left. That's what we're going at. Okay. You're confused now. Right now, one thing about this, um, we had a family meeting that everybody that's listening should go watch the family meeting. It's very short, but we have a family meeting every year where we talk about all the new things that are coming up next year in Thrival in 2015. And you can you can hear from Joey. Sweet. The, the director of uh, the Thrival Incubator. You can hear from Joy Lazat, the director of the Academy. Yes. Um, you can hear from Jennifer, the director of the Community division that's our mm-hmm. members our private I, community and you can also hear from people. you know these people you can hear from adrian who's the director of the thrival laboratory um, so go listen where, to our family meeting or go watch it online where can we go to check that it's out it's on vimeo.com slash thrival but we'll link it up in the show notes sweet perfect check that out next up is uh caleb newquist on yes. the secret stash caleb newquist is uh one of the guys i blog for over on going concern this guy's got an incredible uh life he's he's got a decent uh a decent resume in the accounting world he was he's been with some uh, with with a boutique firm uh, in uh, Colorado. He's also been with a uh, big four firm in uh, New York City mm. where he started blogging just to keep New York fam- City. Yeah, to, he, he did. So this was his, his original blog that turned into to the biggest smart ass blog in accounting <laughs> started with him being in New York City, just blogging so that his family in Omaha would <laughs> would know what life in the big city is. And now that's all he does. He's not he doesn't do accounting he's his license is inactive it's taken him entirely the different direction just by starting a blog yeah. and keeping with it so the options are amazing he's got a lot to say about a lot of stuff because he's got his finger in a lot of the accounting pies uh so <laughs> so he writes for going concern and he's the uh, i think the chief editor at accountingweb.com yep. right chief yep. editor publisher we don't know what that title is but it's a right. big title he's a big he's a big deal all right here so we let's, go uh, Let's listen to it. The first tip that I would say is to just start one. Start a blog cool. on your own. Um, 
go to WordPress, go to Tumblr, go to Google's Blogger. Uh, gosh, and just and just learn, just learn how to build it. It really takes. I think I think my cats could do it. I mean, it's <laughs> okay. so it's so easy to do. Okay, you're talking um, and, mechanics. You're talking the mechanics of. I'm talking about a little bit of mechanics, but I, I think I think if you're serious, if you're serious about it, you will do that. I don't think. I mean, because I mean, good writing uh, these days it's just so easy to 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 build a blog. And I think the nice thing about a blog is you can share it with. It's easy to share with people, and then you can get feedback. Um, one of the hardest things that I've found as a as a more traditional writer is finding people to give you feedback. I mean, like trying to, I've been trying to form a writing group for like nine months and I can't do it. It is so hard to do. Um, on the internet, if you share it with people, share it with your colleagues, share it with your friends, share it with your family, um, it, it's just easy. You email it to them or you, or, you, or you tweet it to them or whatever and be like, hey, what do you think of this? And right. it's just like, there's, there's instantaneous feedback. So. I think I think a blog is the is if you're serious about blogging, especially, <laughs> uh, you should start one yourself and learn the mechanics and learn how to build one. And it's it's really anybody can do it. Cool. Um, do, that would be the first one my, I would say. My wife my wife's a realtor. I think yeah. that she's amazing and she's got really good ideas and she's she's yeah. uh, she she's doing a great job. I tell her she needs to write a blog and she says, but I don't know what I would blog about. Okay. Do you have to have some big? Do you feel like you have to have some big overarching concept that's brilliant, or do you, or or what? No, not not. I don't think so. I mean, initially, like I said, when I like I said on the the, the September show, um, <laughs> I started. <laughs> I I said that uh, you know I started I started blogs so that my so that people could keep up with me, like my family in Nebraska and other people right. in Colorado when I was living out East. Um, uh, I, I didn't, I was just, I wasn't writing about anything in particular. And then uh, slowly but surely it came to me because I was frustrated with my job and I was not a very right. happy person. It all of a sudden hit me. It's like, well, actually my girlfriend helped me figure this out, but she said, you need an outlet. So yeah. why don't you, why don't you write about your job and like what you're going through and right. what annoys you and all these things. And all of a sudden, that was it. Like, I couldn't, I was like, this is what I'm writing about. This is what I'm writing uh, about. And you uh, just don't, like, sometimes it's it's a little bit, you just stumble upon it. Fake it till you make it. Totally, man. And then our last one on the secret stash was back in October, Jennifer Warawa. And she's Why the do you v- say that name? Warawa. Wah, wah, wah. She's like the VP general manager of a Sage accountant solution. So she's, uh, she don't, I don't know. She doesn't just work for Sage, but she's like a voice to the profession and actually knows she used to run her own big firm in Canada. And we actually got her to tell us a very cool story. Which was about about value price. This is I, I forced her to tell the story because this is like the best value pricing story that I that I've heard. So yeah. check out check it out. Worth worth listening to. You we saved the best for last. Right. So uh, years ago, when I had my firms, this is before um, value pricing. Actually, I think when I started doing value pricing, I don't even think I knew it was called value pricing. But that's another story. <laughs> 
Right. So I had a client that I did consulting work for. And as you know, when you have a firm, you become this very trusted advisor to your clients. The next thing you know, they're asking, you know, what should I get my wife for Christmas? And they just trust you with uh-huh. all of their finances and all of their most um, personal requests. So he was negotiating a really large multi-million dollar deal, but didn't want to come to the forefront and expose that it was his company that was looking at this deal. So he asked me if I could negotiate for him and if it looked like things were going to go through, I disclosed to each side who was, the, you know, who was the negotiating party, and and they'd take it from there. Right. So I ended up negotiating this deal. It didn't take a lot of my time. It was just more strategy, and I really enjoyed it. It was awesome. Mm-hmm. And then they started working together. That was great. And then I went to go and bill him, and I I was billing by the hour. So I actually looked at how many hours it took me. So let's just uh-huh. say. It took like, you know, 10 hours and I was billing by the hour and I looked at the size of the deal. So it's this multi-million dollar five-year deal. And I had like 10 hours of work to pull it together. (laughs) Uh And so I was like, I was mortified because I'm like, oh my goodness, when I send this bill, it looks ridiculous. (laughs) So I was trying to figure out how do I solve it. It looked ridiculous in what way? It looked ridiculous. Did you small? It was just teeny, right? Like you would be like on earth is this like that? So anyways, my solution for having this totally inadequate bill for this crazy project I did was just to not bill at all. So that was how I solved it. So <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just plain and simple, not going to send a bill. Which just was, hide. I don't recommend that just to let you know. So yeah. I don't stress that. But so I run into him, uh, you know, like a month later and we're working on another project. And he said, I don't think I saw your invoice for those services for that deal that you negotiated for me. And I said, yeah, you know, I, I just really enjoyed it. Don't worry about it. This is, this is on me. Because, I mean, what do you say, right? I'm an idiot. I don't know how to bill you for this. This part. Said, well, hey, what, are you, what are you and your husband doing next weekend? And I was like, nothing. I don't think we have plans. And he said, well, as you know, I'm, I'm uh, one of the owners of this um, NHL team. Okay. But I'm, I'm one of the owners, and we have a big – um, party going on and a big thing for Wayne Gretzky's retirement. And so my husband is a huge Wayne Gretzky fan. He grew up in Edmonton. So he was just, he's super in love with Wayne Gretzky. So he said, yeah, would you like to come to this party? It'll be all the NHL players and Wayne Gretzky. And then we're going to sit in the center ice suite and we're going to watch the game. And it's just going to be super amazing. And I said, uh, I would love to, that would be great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, assistant calls me, arranges for our flights. When we check into the hotel, they're like, oh, just to let you know, we have strict instructions that anything you want is on the room. They're paying for everything. So just order room service, have an awesome night. They had a car service come pick us up and take us to the game. We got to meet all these NHL players, network with the owners, and sit in the best seats in the entire arena for this amazing game and Wayne Gretzky's retirement. And so, and at the end, he said, as I'm leaving, thank you so much for the most amazing evening that we will never forget. He said, I still expect you to send me an invoice. So, <laughs> so I, I think that. So what'd I you bill him? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I think what changed everything for me was what he saw, the value he saw in the service I was providing was so far beyond what I was going to bill him for that service by charging him by the hour that it changed everything for me. I went this, this weekend. I mean, those tickets, first of all, to that game, they sold out in two minutes and they were going thousands of dollars each online for a bad seat. Wow. So it was probably, let's just say it was a, it was probably a $20,000 value weekend. 
And when I look at that wow. and I'm going to bill, you know, if I even bill a couple thousand dollars, there was such a disconnect between the value and the service I was providing and what right. my clients thought that something had to change. And, um, and that drove change immediately in my business. I said, I, I, I think we need to adopt, I didn't say value pricing, but some kind of different pricing model. And the other piece yeah. is it doesn't make sense that the more efficient you become, the less money you make. I mean, that just logically doesn't make any sense. You can't, and if you're billing by the hour, that's, that's what happens. Yeah. So I think um, those two things were just proof points for me that something needed to change. Wow. What, what did you, so, so what did, did you ever send him a bill? Oh, I think I did. And I think I just put, I, I, I think I just took whatever I would normally bill him and double it or something and sent it. And I was like, I still didn't even know. I'm like, I don't even yeah. know how to figure out what I'm going to bill him for this. But. <laughs> right, right. That's right. awesome. That's, I love that story. That's, yeah, that's so good. Well, and it, and it really fantastic. speaks to, and I think we, you know, hopefully it puts firms on notice. It's like, hey, you, we need to get this pricing thing worked out. It's about value. It's not about what we're doing. It's about what value it is to our customer. And that that's very important. So awesome. People, that's all of our secret stash. That's wow. It. Wow. Merry Christmas. Isn't that, that awesome? We hope you liked it. It I was, liked it. It was fast. I did too. And guys, we're we're looking forward to uh, 2015, another year where we are going to have some amazing podcasts. So so come on back next year. This this party train to accounting utopia has not yet <laughs> arrived at its final station. So <laughs> let's do this. Let's do this some more in 2015. Thanks again to our sponsors, Avalara. Go check them out at avalara.com. And yes, and thank you so much to our sponsors, Zoho Books. Uh, you just check them out at zoho.com, Z O H O.com, and you'll actually see all their products, including their accounting app. Um, and so, Greg, how do people reach you if they want to annoy you and complain about uh, this secret stash episode? Uh, check me out. On Twitter, or if you want to fight me about uh, about value pricing, <laughs> check me out on Twitter at Greg Kite. What about you, Jason Blummer? Uh, people can find me on Twitter at Jason M Blummer, and then we're good. Well, we got a, two two quick other uh, thanks. Big thanks to your wife, the incredible uh, Jennifer Blummer. She works really hard on this secret stash oh, episode, man. so that you and I can phone it. That's right. Yeah. It in. And, uh, and thanks also to Aaron, Aaron Dowd. He's our audio engineer. He, uh, he makes all this stuff sound as best as it can. Even when Jason's gigantic, mic like it's echoing. Echo yeah. We so. are techno goop. I mean, we should just start a DJ company probably. <laughs> yes. You know what? 50. Boom. Okay, guys. Thanks. We're out of here. Thank you for listening to us. And Happy New Year, guys. Bye-bye.